I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Imagine if you're a big, macho football player or rugby player and you're aggressive and trying to move around and then you fall and get injured and the medical team runs to you and says, you have to meditate. Now, now my guest today, Danny Donake, is a former football player and until this last month, he was the head of medical services for Everton Football Club. He has worked with World Cup winners, Grand Slam winners, Olympic gold medalists, and a world champion boxer. He works holistically and understands that the origins of pain and suffering are not always in the physical form. After he completed a master's degree in leadership at the Tavistock, he now works with executives around the world to find inner peace and develop intentional culture. If you want some way where you can actually connect to more than just the culture of running around and doing business. He had a number of spiritual experiences that resulted from his daily practice of meditation for over 30 years. He was a bit of a monk, really, and, and running around football fields. And he has been fortunate to have worked directly with many, many spiritual masters and teachers around the world, including Sadhguru. This is an interesting conversation because none of us ever wakes up in the morning with no pain whatsoever in our bodies. So I intend to ask Danny about his holistic approach, not medicines, not pills, not surgeries, to perhaps healing a bit of our pain. Danny Donake. Thank you so much for joining me. It is amazing for you to be here. I've been waiting for this for a while because I honestly think that what you're doing is magic. I honestly believe that to be true. The reason I say it's magic is I am aware of the, of the value of what holistic healing, if you want, to ourselves. But to convince macho football players to do that, I just can't imagine how you would be standing in front of an injured football player and telling him to meditate or to, you know, to work on his mind. It just doesn't work for me. First of all, how do you find that experience? How has it been working for you? Well, it's quite a paradox because as you say, like to imagine that football is like these big macho people. And I'm even thinking about a time I went into a spoke to England rugby team. You think that these big macho, like hard as nails people, but the reality is that inside that outside shell is a soft, gentle, loving no, person. No, I don't believe that. Is that even t- <laughs> Are you serious? In- inside those vicious, like rugby players, there is a soft shell, a wonderful person? 
I spoke to the England rugby team, it was a few years ago now, about one of my silent retreats I'd been on. Uh-huh. And they, they were so interested. And after it, several of them came to speak to me and actually ended up working with a few of them afterwards about mindfulness and being more present. So these are the massive, big England international rugby players. They're no different to anybody else. Mm. So they're just looking for peace and presence in life. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing. Of course, I know that to be true. I mean, the other side of my life, of course, is because of my business career, I worked with all of those big CEOs who are rough and tough and aggressive. And in the media, they're seen as those take no prisoners kind of people. And all of them inside, they just want their daughters to be happy, really. It's like, this is the, <laughs> this is the whole thing. You know, it's like, if you give me that, I'll be fine. That's okay. How did you end up in that place, Danny? I mean, you were a player yourself, right? You were a football player yourself. And yes. then how did you end up, first of all, in the medical career and really taking care of the well-being and health of, uh, of players, but also in specifically in, in uh, holistic healing? So one of the early experiences I had when I was a player, I was playing for Carlisle United at the time, and we had an away game at Wrexham, which was probably around a two-hour coach drive. And somebody gave me a CD. It was Paul McKenna, who is a famous uh, hypnotist in England. He, He was famous years ago. And it was about kind of improving performance as a footballer. And at the time, I kind of thought that hypnotism was a load of rubbish. It was nonsense. It wouldn't do anything. But I thought, well, I'll give it a go. So at the start of the coach journey, it says, right, think of a skill that you want to improve. And my left foot wasn't so good. So I thought, right, my left foot. And then I listened to what he was saying and he counted me down and said, right, fall asleep. So I get to the other end of the coach journey and I'm walking into the stadium and things just felt a little bit different. And I thought, hmm, that's a bit curious. So I went into the changing room, got changed, went out onto the pitch and I couldn't believe what happened. My left foot was like a wand. My right foot was hardly even working at all. Oh, wow. I'm like, what? How can this happen? And in my rational mind, as I said, I was thinking this doesn't work. It makes no sense. But it completely transformed how I felt and how I played. So that kind of got me curious. And even, even in the early days before that, my dad was a footballer in the 70s and he was big into meditation. So he got me interested in the mind and going beyond the physical self. So... Yeah, I had an upbringing. You're probably the best person in the world to tell us that those things actually work. I mean, in an interesting way, in the career of a footballer or an athlete of any kind, probably the most traumatic, most dramatic event ever is to get injured. And take us through the journey. I'm I'm guessing if a footballer gets, gets injured, there is so much happening in their mind. There is, you know, it's basically losing your job, losing your life's purpose, losing everything really. And if you go to them and say, hey, let's do some holistic healing, my guess is they'll go like, um, can you just please leave me alone, right? So how does that happen in your experience? Yeah, I think those times you're not even thinking about holistic healing. You're thinking about how you can comfort the player because as you say, they're in the time of the biggest need in their life. And I actually experienced that myself. I can remember I dislocated my ankle and Ouch. the day after that, I realized that my dream to be a footballer had finished and I, I lay in my bed for the whole day and cried. I cried the whole day. And I think in the first instances where a player has an injury like that, it's about just being there for them and being fully present. And I'm thinking now about a player a couple of years ago who had a similar injury. It was a high profile injury in a game against Tottenham. 
And I went with him to the hospital. I couldn't do anything other than allow the experts to deal with the injury, to heal the bone and to fix the bone. But what I did do was I was there for him. He was in a real state, as you can imagine, and I was fully present with him. And we'll have a lifetime friendship and bond because of that. Well, in terms of the holistic stuff, I feel like, and it's interesting you use the word holistic because holistic can seem to be like it can have negative connotations, but we're all whole human beings. We're not just the physical body. And to help any person go beyond just their physical body is an incredible thing. And I read your book actually this week before I came on. And let me just say this story. So recently, a couple of weeks ago, I left my job at Everton and that was that I'd been, oh, wow. I'd been in that job for a long time. Like, 15 years or something. Yeah, 15 years or longer. And it was a sudden abrupt ending. And the old manager who I work with is now manager of Real Madrid. And he, he said to me, come over to Madrid and spend a few days with me, which was amazing. So on this morning, I was in Madrid and it was a sunny morning. It was cold. It was chilly, sunny. But I'm walking towards the training ground. I'm walking for about an hour. And this is kind of the reason why I'm on this podcast now. So I listened to your podcast with Steve Bartlett, and he Uh said that if you're going to listen to one podcast, uh, you should listen to this one. Yeah, that conversation was quite something. I think I was a bit high, to be quite honest. (laughs) And I have to tell you openly, I I actually didn't know who Stephen was when I went to the podcast. At the time, I had four podcasts booked a day. I was launching my new book. And so this was just one more on the agenda. I didn't prepare for it. I just showed up, wonderful guy. I had no idea. And then we sit down, we talk for two hours and man, that was a conversation. I, you know, I have no idea what I said came from, but yeah, so you listened to it. Thank you. Yeah, so it was amazing. And I can still remember the moment now I'm walking down the street. I can imagine the street as if I'm there today. The way the sunlight was, there was this massive yellow brick building. I'm walking along. I've got tears streaming down my face because obviously in a good way, because you made me feel, and I felt such strong emotion, obviously the story about Ali. Mm. And at this point, when I'm walking down the street, you say about your daughter's dream where he said to her a couple of nights before he died, that he had a dream where he was everywhere and part of everything and part of everyone. And he no longer wanted to be caged in the body. Mm. And had a tremendous impact on me and it really does when i read your book there was parts of the book that just made me feel so strongly you also said in the podcast that you wanted to keep the essence of ali alive and that is why you did the book and continued to do incredible things and i felt powerfully in that book certain parts that the essence of ali is alive totally so the other thing is about the tattoo that he had that he didn't tell you about. It was just to remind people the gravity of the battle means nothing to those at peace. Mm-hmm. And when you say the word holistic, I'm thinking about all the people I work with and they're in many battles, you know, whether it's a football battle, whether it's a, a corporate battle. But I feel like there's no greater honor or privilege than to try and help people find peace in the battle. That's so beautiful. First of all, you make me tear up. I'm grateful that you felt this. I'm grateful that you feel Ali's essence because I just was with a friend and we were talking about some of Ali's stories and 
it is very unusual how much his essence is actually still alive. It's really interesting. Just by setting the right intention, the right intention for me was his physical form has gone, but his beautiful essence can remain. And I'm one man and I've never written anything before. And, and somehow just that setting that intention properly and understanding that he was never his physical form. This is just the vehicle he used to navigate this physical world. Then it remains. Then that essence actually is so prevalent. It's really crazy. And you setting that intention, I think, on your side of this is not a job for me. This is not to win the cup. This is not to make players like me or appreciate my services. You're really trying to say players, corporate executives, whatever, you're basically saying, I can bring peace to those people's lives. Why is it that we struggle so much with peace? The reason I was talking about this with my friend was actually also about peace. It's like so much of our life is okay. And yet we're struggling so much most of us all the time. I mean, the battle is raging, but most of the battle is noises around us. It's not really bullets shot at our hearts. And yet we're constantly struggling. We just can't find that peace. What do you think that is? I think from a young age, we get taught to use our minds and to think, and we spend most of our time in our heads. And obviously all the thoughts that we have are thinking about the future or the past. And that takes our ability to be in the present out. And now we've got all these gadgets that are taking our attention and our focus. I've been lucky to work with a few incredible teachers in my life. And I've had some experiences where I've been able to turn that focus inwards. And it's kind of uh, completely changed my essence and the way I feel and given me a, a deeper sense of peace. And I think the more that I and anybody can help people be more present in their body in the present moment and as you said in your book you don't need to do anything to be present (laughs) you need to stop doing yeah yes but the intention and even having this conversation and speaking about presence and being present automatically brings you into the present moment and as I'm saying that, I become more aware of the physical sensations in my body. And at that point, I have the option of staying with them. And if I do, I get a deeper and deeper sensation and more sense of ease and relaxation. Or I can go back into my head and think, what's happening? Is this going well? All that kind of stuff. Or I can come back into the present. And it's the same for the listener. It's the same for you. And the more that you can train this muscle of awareness and presence, the more this kind of anxiety that you're talking about and this disease gradually dissolves and you can train that into your being. But what if the sensation is pain, Danny? I mean, what if the sensation is injury? Well, if the sensation is pain or injury, the natural thing to do is to withdraw and maybe repress the feelings. And I did this as a young footballer. Whenever you have pain, you don't show it, you hide it. But that stuff stays in your body. The body remembers these things. And if you repress it, it will always come up later and it will always kind of be in your shadow. So my suggestion is that if you have pain, then you fully go into it and you fully feel it. So when I was walking down that street in Madrid and I was going through this change and I'm feeling this pain and strong, intense feeling in my heart, I fully went with it and fully felt it. And that allows the present moment to kind of dissolve that feeling and move on. That is so, so, so paramount in its value, what you just said. So our natural inclination 
is to avoid pain. This is built in us. It's in our mammalian brain. Basically, your amygdala is, is saying, look, I don't want any of this. I just want to avoid any pain. Now, you're saying I go for a body scan. I deeply tune into my body. And what I'm actually trying to do is to sit with the pain. That's very, very, very unusual because why would I want to feel more of it? I mean, dissolving, isn't there a pill I can take or a surgery I can do to just remove that pain? I mean, the painkiller industry is all about that. It's about avoid the pain. Yeah. I think there's obviously, if there's a physical pain where you break your leg, like we spoke about earlier, then it's good to have pain relief. But in my opinion, in my experience, the majority of pain that is more chronic than that, so longer than one to two weeks, is psychological in origin. And it's because we deny the experience of the pain and then we stop moving like we used to. And let me tell you the first story that kind of made me realize this. I was working in Manhattan in a physio clinic and I was working with an elite oboe player. He was 19 at the time and he was coming religiously. He was doing everything that I was telling him to do. I was working on his back. He had nerve pain in his wrists and it had been ongoing for six months. So he was a kind of patient that would do everything you'd ever want. He was incredible. And after a couple of months of working with him, I called the doctor and I said, look, it's not working. I'm doing everything I can physically, but it's not working. I feel like there's something psychologically going on underneath the pain. And the doctor said to me, um, have you spoken to him about it? In America, you need to be careful what you do. So that gave me an invite to speak to him. So he came in the next day and I, I said, um, I think there might be something more to this pain than just the physical that we're working with. And he, he broke down, he mm. broke down in tears and he was 19 at the time. And when he was 10, his mother got cancer and she was taken away from him and taken into hospital. And he went there and his experience was that they took her away and she was kind of had all these drips and wires and everything. And at that point, he began playing the oboe. So he put his life and soul into learning the oboe and he became a world-class oboe player. So we had this conversation, floods of tears. The next week he came back and said, yeah, I've, I've not had any pain. Wow. The pain had gone. And I've literally worked with so many people where you get to the unconscious psychological origin and emotional origin. And if, when the emotion goes, the pain goes. There was a lady that came to see me several years ago and she hadn't been able to stand up for 10 years. She came to see me in her car. She was lying in the back of the car. She had to lie down in the treatment session. And I just explained to her the, what what's happening in the unconscious and the pain and how we avoid things. And within a couple of weeks, she was back to normal life and walking. And I've seen that so many times. And I think the medical profession now, we're very kind of physical orientated and we're always looking at the physical and they call it iatrogenic illness where medical profession kind of give people illnesses, obviously not <laughs> intentionally. I, I think there's a huge error that we make and just looking at the physical body as a physical mm. because it's not. This is basically contradicting everything we understand. I mean, in an interesting way, sadly, I mean, of course it took me a very long time in my life. I think my very first experiences, I had a Reiki session with an incredible healer. She was 63 years of age. She looked 37, I can promise you that. And she, you know, sat me down and, and said, okay, do you believe in Reiki? Like I'm a brainiac and an engineer. And at the time, you know, I was the worst you can ever find. So I said, absolutely not. And she smiled. <laughs> so, so she smiled and said, okay, lie down. And actually did not open her mouth. Literally didn't ask me a question. 
And then I felt like 240 volts coming through my head. And I closed my eyes, but I could actually feel where her hands were. It was so unusual for me. Eventually she said, you have several pains in your body. She pointed them out and she said, and you have one between your shoulders that I can't heal. I don't know where it came from and it is emotional. I cannot do anything about it. You have to find the emotion and you have to heal the emotion. And I tried and tried and tried. And I was traveling at the time until I eventually realized there was At the time I had a a girlfriend in my life and it was very, very heated. We had lots of heated conversations and one of them was in front of my daughter, which really, really sort of tortured me in an interesting way. And so anyway, I realized that this was the emotion I was keeping inside. I text my friend who was going to see the healer and I said, I found the emotion. Can you ask her what to do? And she said, forgive. At that time I had been six months out of the gym, unable to work out and I'm a writer, so my shoulder pain was horrible. And that's what I did. I simply said, what, forgive? And I literally basically called that ex at the time. And I said, hey, remember when you did this? It really, really hurt me. She said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I was emotional at the time and so on. And poof, the next morning, I had the best workout of my life, overnight. Like I went to bed, unable to move. I wake up the next morning and it's gone. But that kind of stuff, before that, I did everything. I had medicine, I was suggested surgery, I I did cupping, I did acupuncture, I did everything. It just wouldn't go away. As long as the emotion was there, it wouldn't go away. How does that happen? I mean, is there like a pattern? Shoulder pain is for being hurt and foot pain. Is is there like something that we can rely on? I don't think there's a, a pattern because I feel like everybody's system, mind, body, spirit is unique. And these things happen in certain ways. It is a pattern in your own system, but there's different ways. And when you said about not believing the Reiki, I learned something called cranial osteopathy a few years ago. And I was a physical therapist by trade, and it's a very physical profession. And this cranial osteopathy, it's a very gentle touch. And it was impossible for me to feel it. And I'm saying, this is nonsense. Like I, I'm science-based, <laughs> I, I have yeah. you know, evidence-based, all this. What are you talking about? And it it took me so long just to be able to feel this subtle pulse. And what happened, I started working on people. And even in my mind, rationally, I'm thinking, this is silly. It's nonsense. and It's not going to do anything. But I put my hands on people and they just go through and relive these traumatic experiences. And after reliving them, the pain and the issue would go away. Hmm. And I couldn't believe my eyes. There was a few times where I had students in the room with me and I was just like, I've got no idea what's going on here. Is this about you? I mean, some people will take this ability and say you're a miracle healer, right? Or is anyone able to do this? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think what it's definitely not about is my rational mind. Mm. So it's, it's impossible for me in any way to claim that I am doing anything with my rational mind that I'm aware of. But there's definitely things that happen that help people go beyond their limitations and go out of these zones of discomfort and into a new area of living a fuller, richer life. And the same thing is true of anxiety. Anxiety is a similar symptom to back pain that kind of holds people in this comfort zone and holds them from stepping out of doing a limited number of things. And you have to take the first step out of this comfort zone. You're talking about healing. I also had a very unusual experience. My co-author on one of my future books in September called Unstressable, Alice Law. Alice is a Reiki master. 
And when I was doing this tour, the book tour of Scary Smart, I was so exhausted, so exhausted. And somehow Alice is a mix of many things. And she said, I'll do Reiki for you. And, and I said, okay, so, and she said, I want you to believe that what you're doing is good for the world. And then she did a Reiki session with me. And I have to tell you, I felt pain. Like I almost, there was something in the way she did it. Like I was like, why is she doing this? It's so intense. And she tells me afterwards that Reiki is not her. Reiki is like coming from the universe somehow. Anyway, afterwards I get up from that Reiki bed and I'm full of energy, like unbelievably energetic, completely ready to do like two more weeks of the tour. Again, interestingly, nothing happened. It's not like I slept. It's not like I took a drug, nothing. And somehow just the idea of switching my mind from this is hard work and a chore to what I'm doing is an important message to the world just suddenly wakes you up with all of that energy. Very unusual. I mean, what should people do? I don't think anyone listening to us lives without a bit of chronic pain. You know, whether it's your back, your neck is stiff, you have a bit of a headache. My sinuses, for example, every now and then they just pop up and give me trouble and so on. So what, what would a normal person who's not able to access someone as professional as you, what should they do? I think the first thing is to question what you do. So normally we're trained in society to, we get back pain, we feel anxiety, then we go and take something, a drug to make it better. I think it's important to really be aware and really present with what is going on in that situation and notice what's happening emotionally when you get the back pain or the headache and be with it as fully as you can and learn as much about it as you can. Because, for example, with back pain, there was a study done several years ago in Boston where they, they did 10,000 MRIs of people with back pain and people without back pain. And there was no difference in terms of disc pathology, the people with or without back pain. And if you go and see a doctor, they're more likely than not to give you an MRI and say, ah, oh, you've got this disc, this is why you've got pain. But if you look at the evidence, there's no truth to that. And there's been many studies done like that. There was one done in Texas on knee surgery. So they used to do knee surgery routinely for knee pain with chronic arthritis. And it was a sham surgery. So they pretended to do the surgery. They actually opened it up, but they never did anything. But importantly, mm. they spoke as if they were doing it because the unconscious is always listening. Mm. So they did everything as if they were doing it. And then the outcome was exactly the same as if they'd done the surgery. No way. Yes. You need to look up, honestly, that you look that up. And th there's been many studies done since. But luckily, they do a lot less surgery like that these days and a lot less back surgery because there's no evidence for it. And even you must know that, you know, if you're talking about medications that you take, there's not that much evidence. A large proportion of the pain medicine that you take is placebo. And it's well known that it's really important, the color of the tablet and the size of the tablet. I think if it's blue, it's more potent. And if it's bigger, it's more potent. You've just spoiled the placebo for almost everyone on earth now. It's no, like, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> it's like people are going to look at the colors now and say, okay, if, it, if it's not blue, I'm screwed here. <laughs> yeah. The power of placebo is incredibly strong. And it's not only for pain. Isn't it interesting from the matrix that blue is the placebo? It's like, this is really, uh, so red wakes you up and blue just keeps you in the illusion. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying, and, and the impact of this is. 
Yeah, so it's not even just pain. You can think that you're in a difficult situation. You can think that you're stuck in life. You can think that, how do I get out of this situation? And unconsciously, you're in a pattern where you are stuck, but there's always a way out of it. And if you can tap into those deeper resources, you'll find the way. And it's always good to have somebody that you can kind of speak to about it and help a guide to help you on the way. I was curious, Mo, about your books. Like you're now a prolific writer. <laughs> Obsessive. And I saw in your book that Ali had told you, he said not... Never to stop working, yeah. Yeah. And you're doing a great thing for humanity. Yeah. And it made me wonder, like, when do you find peace? Because you're doing so much work. When I, do you I'm find always, peace? always, always, always at peace. It's, it's really weird. I get stressed. I get exhausted. I don't get annoyed or anxious or guilty or regretful or I, I just don't if you think about life with you at the center of it life becomes very 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 stubborn and annoying because life doesn't just want to serve you all the time if you think of yourself as the servant of life and that life itself is the center suddenly everything becomes so chill and easy. It really is. I don't know if it's age or if I'm becoming boring, but in my mind, actually nothing really is that bad at all. Even losing Ali, when you really think about it, yes, it hurts like mad, but that doesn't make it bad, if you know what I mean. I mean, there is an interesting understanding, whether you're spiritual or not, about the idea of death, eventually, sooner or later, we're going to go there. So in a very interesting way, I almost have certainty that myself and, and Ali and Aya and my daughter and everyone I love will eventually be where he is, wherever that is. And this life is so transient. It's absolutely worth the effort, but it's not worth obsessing over. So I'm fully engaged. I mean, I just finishing, actually, as we speak, I'm on page 272 of 286 of my next book in editing. It took me three weeks, one of the most difficult edits I've ever had to do in my life. So I worked eight hours a day sitting on this chair and literally editing every single word so that people really get what I'm trying to say for the book, That Little Voice in Your Head. And yeah, I'm, my body is hurting. Okay. Sometimes I go like, yeah, why did my editor make that change? But in my heart, I'm like, oh my God, that's such a privilege. It's such an, a joy to be able to put what's in your heart on paper and hope that one person will read it, let alone a few tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands or millions, like what happened with Soul for Happy or Scary Smart is also going really well. And I think it's that intention that fixes your emotion perhaps. And so according to what you're teaching me, when your emotion is, oh my God, that's a privilege, it's not a chore. It doesn't feel like a battle anymore. This is what I was saying at the beginning. I think this is where it is. And you mentioned that in one of your talks, actually, I, I heard you say that players who feel that they're losing their purpose, you know, when they're injured, they feel that they don't have purpose anymore. That's really where the injury hits really hard. Because that idea of I'm useless, I don't have value to the world. I mean, I think this is something you said at a point in time. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I feel that um, at the moment in society, because of the pandemic and everything, we're kind of having a bit of a, an anxiety epidemic and <laughs> yeah. kind of that people are searching for a greater purpose. And a lot of the people that I work with at the moment, they've created these incredible businesses. They've become top footballers or tennis players. And it's not brought them the happiness and the sense of yeah, peace. Yeah, isn't that, that amazing? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, well, what's next? 
what's next and how am I going to find that sense of peace? And it's also about kind of motivation. So you get to a level of being a footballer, say you're 25 and you've achieved incredible things, then financially and in terms of trophies or whatever, there's nothing really to go for. And it's not an easy thing being a footballer, being a high performer. So the level of motivation kind of drops. Yeah. So it's about finding that motivation and finding that passion. And I think that the pandemic has taught us all more than anything that to live a life with purpose is it has to be done every moment, every word that we speak. There's a possibility that it's going to transform yourself and other people to lead richer and more peaceful lives. But what is purpose in your definition? I mean, if you're not a big footballer or you're not a CEO of a big company, if you're an accountant that you know commutes to work every day and has two kids, so what would the purpose be? Well, I think everyone has a unique purpose and I think everyone has a unique talent, a unique history that leads to having certain desires that you want to fulfill. Sometimes like an accountant with two kids may feel overburdened with the, the fact that they need this job to support their kids and family. But there's always something more that they're looking for in their lives. And, and you have to feel that and sense into that and then push yourself to challenge and you're clearly doing that yourself through the books and you said that you get nudges in life and Ali was one of the biggest nudges you've ever had we have to become more receptive and more open to feeling and listening to these nudges because they're there all the time Mm, that's absolutely true I actually believe that purpose is quite tricky in a way because the Western definition of purpose is I'm going to think in my cognitive brain, in my analytical brain, I'm going to find something that I'm excited about. I'm going to make that my purpose and then I'm going to chase it. When in reality, any story of anyone, I believe that has ever done anything, your purpose finds you. It's almost the other way around. You're there. I was a chief business officer of Google X and, you know, just completely focused on the business and thinking that my life is all about innovation and helping startups and so on. And then poof, you know, life nudges you and tells you that's not your purpose at all. You've been doing work on happiness for so long. So you just go to the right path, right? And interestingly, even as I'm so blessed with so many people listening to what I work on and finding value in it. It's never about the number of people. It's never about the magnitude of that purpose because one person, you change one person. I mean, in a very interesting way, think about my ex-wife, my wonderful ex-wife, who's in my view, the most amazing woman on earth. Her purpose in reality was to raise Ali and Aya. And the way she raised Ali and Aya is the reason that triggered me to do the things I do. So I'm basically worthless without her purpose. And she did it so well that it affected me and that affected the world. And I think people forget that, that purpose doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be a TED Talk worthy thing and that you never really know when it's going to arrive and that you never really know how far it would go. And interesting that you say that this also adds to the well-being, that when you're feeling that you're living up to your purpose, it, it makes you feel healthier and, and easier in life. Yeah, I think uh, it's really important what you said. And you nudged me with your uh, podcast oh, with you. Steve Bartlett. And Ali nudged me as well. He's a good boy. He's definitely <laughs> a, a two-way nudge. Yeah. And you nudged me in, in the sense that when I heard that you wanted to reach 10 million people and then that turned into a billion, it made me think, I need to do more. I need to do more to help people. As I was walking here this morning, 
a couple of meters outside of this studio, there was four or five tents, homeless people living in these tents. Wow. And it's getting quite cold here in Manchester now. Mm. And, and I'm walking past and sometimes I'd probably walk past and not even notice. But I, I stood there for a few moments and that deep feeling of pain in my heart that we're humans and there's humans here in deep suffering. Yeah. And a lot of the time I don't do anything about it. Yeah, that, that kills me. That kills me. It kills me how synthesized. I mean, basically we've just taken a cover and put in front of our hearts. You walk next to a homeless person, you don't even notice. It's the suffering of another human. It's just crazy, especially when it gets this cold and I, you know, I'm bold and always cold. So, so <laughs> it really shocks me, but I, I don't know what you can do about this because in an interesting way, that empathy is just sometimes also void of, of the ability to change anything. So it just adds to your, I don't know, your suffering yourself, because how can you help? Yeah, well, I think action is really important, isn't it? So you can feel this pain in your heart and you can still do nothing. And as you said earlier, if you reach out to one person and it changes their lives, then you can impact the whole universe by doing that. Mm -hmm. it, that can really impact the whole universe. So I walked past there this morning and I asked my wife, can we invite a homeless person into our house? Maybe? Oh, that's so beautiful. That is amazing. So who knows what impact that might have on the universe? Who knows? And you reminded me when you were speaking, when my son is 18 and he's gone off to university. Oh my God, you look 18. <laughs> <laughs> when did you have him? When you were zero? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but when he was about five, we were walking through the streets of Manchester and I think it was the first time he'd seen a homeless person and he turned to his mum and he said, um, why is that man there? And she explained to him why he was there. And he burst into tears. And that essence and that open-heartedness we are born with. And I think the journey for most of us is getting back to that. And that is, yeah. that is our, our ultimate purpose, if you want. Ali Habibi used to sit next to a homeless person. So he never would give them something before he would sit next to them, like literally, you know, how they would be leaning against a wall or something. And then Ali would literally sit down with his back next to that wall and start chatting to that person. Unbelievable. I mean, that's the best gift you can ever give to someone. And you could easily see them like first worried, is he a police or what's wrong? Is he mad? Right. And then suddenly they feel the connection and he loved to talk to them and he would hug them and then he would give them a gift. And it was, you know, he would pass by when he lived in Boston and I would go to visit him. Boston had lots of homeless people and it's crazy cold. Okay. And he would pass by and, and greet them by name, which is really, 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 un I'm, I'm not at that level at all. I mean, I, it's so unbelievably generous and kind. It just reminds me, you know, in Islam, we have this very strong, very popular, if you want, saying, where basically, if you see something you disapprove of, you're obliged to change it. And the best change is with your action. The second best your change is with your words. And the least of all changes is to change it with your heart, is to actually feel, pray, hope that this was not the case. So sort of, at least in your own psyche, wish for that to change. But don't ignore it. Don't just walk by it and say, ah, another homeless person. Because when you're doing that, 
yeah, their life is exactly the same and it's not amazing if you think about it. But what's really happening is that you're covering your heart, you're filling your heart with that opaqueness, if you want, to, to, to not be able to connect to the way others feel. Yeah, I believe you will change the lives of many. I really do. And I think you already are, but it's so interesting that you feel that you got this nudge. So what do you think something like that would look like? What is your dream? Well, in the dream that Ali said to his sister, he he said, um, as we mentioned, that he felt like he was part of everything and he he felt this expansiveness. And I've had a couple of experiences in my life where I've had that when I've been alive. And my dream is to help people access that when they're alive. How do we do that? I want to access that. Well, I think it's through awareness and through focus and attention. So I'll tell you about one of the experiences I had. There's a practice called circling, and it was developed at the place in America where all the kind of holistic people go for the festival. <laughs> so it was developed there. I think they were high on LSD at the time when they developed it. Sure. But it's basically about present moment awareness. So I learned about this practice and I found out there was a weekend course in Amsterdam. So I turned up to this building in Amsterdam. It was on the fifth floor. I get to the fifth floor. I walk in and there's about 30 people there. And part of this practice that I didn't know is kind of giving full attention through the eyes. So you're really open to other people's eyes and you actually do that one-on-one -on -one in the groups and stuff like that. So it was a very intimidating room to go into. I thought, this is so weird. What, what is going on here? So on the third day, I'd built up this level of practice of awareness, of being fully present in my being and body. And they suggested that we did the practice with another person. So there was this guy there. We sit opposite each other with open eyes, just connecting, allowing each other to connect. And what happened was unbelievable. So I started to feel this strong vibration in my hands and then in my feet. And I felt a pull here and it kind of made my head go up like that. On your third eye? Yes. Mm. And I went up like that and you're supposed to speak and tell the other person what you're feeling and experiencing. And it's a dialogue, an open dialogue. But I felt like I couldn't speak. So I just said, look, I can't speak. So I went up like that and then this vibration just passed up through my spine into my head and opened up and I felt, just thinking about it, it blows my mind, I felt intense joy and that any idea of myself completely dissolved and I felt, as Ali said in the dream, that I was at one with everything and part of everything. Oh. So that was one way that I was able to touch that but there's many ways. I don't want to interrupt you. Tell me about the other ways, but I have so many questions. So another experience, I was, one of my teachers is called Sadhguru. Of course. Yeah. One of my teachers is called, <laughs> called Sadhguru. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of, a lot of stories. Yeah. He's got a small guy, you know, you may not have heard of him, but yes, uh, good guy. Well, uh, amazing. <laughs> a lot of people haven't. Uh, is that true? Yeah, yeah. When I took him into Everton mm -hmm. um, to meet the players and speak to the players, I took him in a few times. They'd never heard of him. Seriously? They're like, who in the hell is this guy? Yeah. He like came in in his robes and his sandals and he's out kicking the ball around before training. <laughs> They're just kind of allowing me. Mm -hmm. um, but he actually had a big impact on them all as well. Yeah, of course. I was at one of his retreats and, and he said that the purpose of this retreat is to see over the wall. And I didn't know what that meant, but 
I was three days into the retreat and I was thinking consciously in my rational mind, this is, it's not happening for me. It's just not happening. I'm giving everything, but I'm not seeing over the wall, whatever it means. I, I just know I'm not. And then we get to the end of this very intense process where there's a lot of like intense physical movement and chanting that reminds me about chanting because you said a couple of times that you don't arm and stuff like that so we can speak <laughs> more about that um but what happened was I, I ended up at the end of this process i sat down with another lady and that somehow it just hit me like a brick wall that sense of seeing over the wall just hit me in that moment and i lost complete sense of myself of my ego of any kind of personal limitation and I was the whole room and universe. And that lasted for a day or so. Mm. And to experience that, to see over the wall, I said to Sadhguru after, I said, look, you've shown me over the wall now. It's natural that I'm going to want to live over the wall. And he said, yeah, that's the purpose. That's the reason. So it's about training attention and doing different things to get into that state and see over the wall. And then I do believe there are certain people like Sadhguru and, and many of the prophets who've gone before him that live in that state over the wall. So what is it like to live over the wall? It's very hard to describe because it kind of, it's like, what is it like to eat an apple? Mm. All I can say is in being in a body, being in an ego, there is a kind of sense of some kind of limitation, but it's an immediate dropping of any sense of limitation. And the dream that Ali had, I think that it sounds like that was the experience that he had in that dream. So there are, there are lots of examples of people. One of my favorite conversations on, on uh, slow-mo here was, uh, Pim van Lommel, who was a cardiologist that worked on near-death experiences. And there are lots of documented cases where people would literally have this out-of-body experience and completely be everywhere. They connect to anyone, they can see anyone. Ali himself, when he was in the intensive care room before he left us, at the moment where I felt he left the world, four of his friends across the world said I was sleeping or sitting and I saw Ali greeting me and saying goodbye. And so it seems to me, and I don't know if there is any scientific evidence behind this at all, but from the conversation with Pim, that this is our actual natural state, that we are actually supposed to be living over the wall, but that, that the physical form limits us and we believe in the illusion. We just tune into that avatar and we believe that the video game is the reality, sort of. Yes. Yes. And I think the only way out of the illusion isn't through the mind. It's beyond the mind. It's through awareness and through training your conscious awareness to go beyond the mind. And the Buddha spoke about this. The Buddha said that life is dukkha, life is suffering. Mm. But he said that you shouldn't follow the Buddha because he's not a god. He was just a normal man. And everybody is capable of Buddhahood. But you have to follow a certain system, a certain set of practices that take you beyond. So let me just come back to the the sound thing. So you said that you wouldn't arm because it's not scientific. I had another experience with Sadhguru and it was a nine day silent retreat. Well, or so I thought, and we get there and Sadhguru walks onto the stage and he's a very charismatic man. And he had probably about 10 monks with him and they all had instruments. And he said, right, I was expecting we're just going to sit there. This isn't a massive hall with 800 people all dressed in white, all having a, a white mattress. 
And he said, right, before we get into silence, we're just going to say this mantra. And it was Om Namah Shivaya. And he belted it out. And all these monks were belting it out as well. And it was like, Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. So we did this for two hours and I was exhausted. And I'm sat there thinking, look, come on, Sadhguru, I came here for a silent retreat. What, what's going on here? And he said, right, I want you to go to sleep on your white mattress and keep it running in your mind, but sleep. So before you sleep, it's still going in your mind. And then he said, the next two days, we're going to be doing this for 14 hours a day. Oh, my God. So I'm like, oh, Sadhguru, come on. I came for some peace, for some silence. What's going on? So what happened was really interesting. After about a day, I felt exhausted as everyone did. But I just went into this other realm and I started having these visions, visions of kind of different worlds, different colors, think places I'd never seen before and have never seen since. And that happened the whole of the next day. And then we stopped doing the chanting and it disappeared. I've never seen it since. Hmm. So you may not have your science to back up the power of mantra, but I think it's definitely worth investigating because as you say in your book, the physical body is mainly space and the power of sound is very important to influence how the body operates. There's another small story that when I was about 17, I was initiated in transcendental meditation. You tried everything. Yeah, come on, we've got one life, why not? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I actually did transcendental I mean, meditation. You really, really slept around, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I did that practice for about 15 years. So although I did sleep around, I am very uh, dedicated and I, mm -hmm. I do stick with things. But I went there when I was 17 and it was this intense initiation process where you have to give things to they're speaking in all this Hindu language. And then basically they, they sit you down and they say, right, this is the mantra. And the mantra is a sound. Yeah, for TM, of course, yeah. Yeah, so you repeat it externally. So the sound is Ram, 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 Ram. And then they say, right, stop saying it externally and just go inwards and repeat it inside your system. And they wanted you to do this for 15 minutes twice a day. Mm. So the first time I did it after this ceremony, I'm thinking something should be happening here. Like I should be really focused. I should be really into the mantra. But what happened was I'm sat there and like my mind's going crazy. I'm thinking about what is this? What, who are all these people? This is, <laughs> you know, what's going on? This is a cult. So although the mantra was going, I was paying no attention to it because I hadn't trained attention. So at the end of it, I thought, well, this is going to do nothing for me. I walk out of the building. It was an old stately home. And I walked out into the, the countryside and I felt like I'd been reborn. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, this is very interesting because I didn't pay any attention to the mantra. And it has still had a profound impact on my experience of life and my experience of awareness. So I think there is definitely a power to these mantras and, and maybe you should uh, try it. So I, I actually put those things uh, in what I call compartment two. Compartment two to me are things that I, I can't prove and I cannot disprove, which basically means they are things that I allow to 
I can work with them. When I say Om, I basically believe that a mantra works, but is it Om itself? Is there other ways, other sounds, you know? I think when people tell me to say Om, I say Oppati to Mambo. And somehow you can actually say Oppati to Mambo. And it's, you know, it's, you know, it's the same thing. So is it really the word or is it, I know I'm rebellious like that in compartment two, but the idea is, is it really the word? Is it really the sound? Is it really the wave? And because of my sort of responsibility for the world, which is to try to bring logic and engineering to topics that I know work, but I don't want to tell people, oh, you have a blanket agreement, they work every time. Maybe we should try to investigate why they work by assuming that they don't always work. You know what I mean? I mean, I've had experiences, shamanic breathing, for example. Oh my God, that thing absolutely works. I did a couple of sound uh, meditations. I'm sure you with your uh, free lifestyle, free, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've, done, you've done some of that too, you know. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and that stuff, you know, when you said you were vibrating, I promise you, I was like literally like, like a musical fork. I felt my body vibrating and I'm an engineer. So I, I could almost measure the wave. It's like, okay, it's going at this amplitude and this frequency. And it, it's just... Of course, your rational brain says, ah, that's crap. And I go into those experiences saying, oh, that's crap, you know, and, and then no, it isn't. It's quite interesting, huh? Yeah. Um, what does your mantra mean? No, nothing. It's just, it was a, it was a funny song from Egypt when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said that um, you're an engineer and you like to kind of uh, define things and bring things with evidence. And I think that's a great thing. And in your book, there's some really good practices that help that. But I'd just like to say that you've given me something a lot more than just an engineering rational sense. And that day when I was walking down that road in Madrid, there's something beyond that ration that you've given me. And it's something connected to the essence of Ali for sure. And I just want to thank you for that gift. And also, I want you to appreciate that you've given that gift to me and you, I'm sure you've given that a gift to many other people as well. And it's way beyond what you're saying. Well, you may not have realized this, but as you were talking, I rarely ever follow gurus, but I was sort of putting you as my guru. <laughs> you don't actually realize how, how much you've affected me with this conversation. There is so much to be done if you took a dedicated path to experimenting and learning like you did which I have to admit has not been the majority of my time, if you want. So I'm finishing that little voice in your head, which I really am happy by now. But a big part of it is the balance, you know, a model that I call be, learn, do. So don't start doing things until you are aware fully first, and then you learn and then you start doing. And most of my life, maybe because I'm reasonably capable of achieving when I set myself targets, has been in doing. Even my work on myself, believe it or not, is highly engineered, which is very unusual. So one of my favorite works that I've done was to actually work on my feminine side and empower my feminine side. And it's quite interesting the way I did it originally was to use my masculine side, highly analytical, understanding exactly what the qualities of the feminine are and, you know, which of them are present in me, to what extent, which of them are not. And then literally working on them with discipline, which is hyper-masculine, until a point in time, which I believe was 2018, where I started to access flow. And flow is, in my view, the ultimate of all feminine qualities. And whoa, 
life completely flipped upside down, completely. It's like, I think that was the first moment in my life where I actually started to consider myself intelligent. So it's so interesting because suddenly you realize that your brain, your mind, your analytical side, regardless of how developed or capable it is, dwarfs, it's, you know, it's dwarfed by the intelligence of the universe, which when you allow yourself to flow, takes you to places you never, ever expected. And I think what you've shown me today is a life example of that, is someone that decided, you know what, I'm curious about why my dad is meditating twice a day and why that tape hypnotized me and made me kick better with my left foot. So I'm going to really jump deep into this. And I feel I found a friend for life and I am really, 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 really grateful that we spent the time today. I wish we can speak longer, but sadly someone organized something right after this call, which makes me go like, ah. anyway, you and I are going to have coffee. Do you drink coffee? Uh, no. I thought you wouldn't be. Yeah. I'll have a tea. <laughs> tea. Like what's wrong with you, Brits? No, <laughs> no, I'll have a tea with you. Uh, hopefully next time I'm in Manchester right. and I hope your current nudge will take you to an amazing place. Thanks, Mo. Really appreciate it. So flow, flow, Danny. I, I really can't thank you enough for being with us today. I, I think everyone listening, you've loved this. This definitely was one of the most profound conversations I had on slow-mo. I hope you loved it as much as I did. If you did, I don't need to remind you, share it with everyone. Go back and listen to it and make some changes. Reality is that most of the challenges we have in our life is coming from within us, from our emotions, from how we deal with things. And so maybe make that change, maybe get rid of that pain, and maybe look for the nudges and actually go out there and change the world. No, do you know what I'm going to do right after this? I'm going to go and sit down next to a homeless person. Oh, yes. Please, everyone listening, do that. Or just smile at the barista or just, you know, embrace someone. It really is, our world is so missing those things. It's really crazy. And yeah, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for your time, Danny. I'm very grateful for everyone's time to have joined us. I love you all for listening. And I will see you next time.